If it's, uh, if it's okay with you, I'm a little bit thirsty, and I'm going to make myself some orange juice. How many of you online or here in person have sort of something similar to some sort of press or contraption where you squeeze fresh OJ out? Yeah, anybody? You can raise your hand. All right, you have a mask on, but it's not on your hand, all right? Yes, I'm going to come over to your house for breakfast, and I like my bacon extra crispy. Uh, so the way, I just bought this, so I don't even know if this is going to work. I'm going against my wife's best advice to try it before I actually do it, but here we go. Um, basically, you cut up an orange, and you're supposed to put it in the center. This is like me, this is finally working at Chick-fil-A through high school. It's finally paid off. You're supposed to press into it and squeeze it and get as much of the juice out of it as you can. Wow, man, it's a good thing I work out. Um, as much as you can. I think I should buy the, uh, like the legit ones because there's somewhere there's a bar that you can drop and you can turn it, and it really presses the OJ uh, out of the orange. Let's see how this tastes. Ooh, Ooh that's really good. That's really good. Um, the point of what I just did is so that I could have a drink. But um, the process is great, unless you're this guy, unless you're the orange. Uh, we are in a teaching series called B, where we're looking at seven letters that Jesus wrote through uh, the disciple John to the seven churches in what, is, what was called Asia Minor. Right now, it's in modern-day Turkey. One of the reasons why I love Christianity, because it rests on historical evidence and accuracy. You can go to any of these cities uh, today. Just invite me to come. I'd like to go to because I'm curious. And last week, we talked about this idea that Jesus said every church was a lampstand. Every church had light, which is a simple way to say that every church has influence. And if you want to know what kind of influence RCC has, well, just ask people who don't go here, <laughs> right? Ask them if they've ever heard of us, right? Uh, and if they have, like, what are some words or adjectives that come to their mind uh, when they think about Rockingham uh, Christian Church? And Jesus said in week one, what, to the church in Ephesus, you love the Bible, you love theology, right? But what you don't do is that you do not love people well. And what Jesus tells the church in Ephesus is that if you don't love well, I will extinguish your light. In other words, I'll take away your influence. And one of the most dangerous things, honestly, guys, in ministry is a church that lost influence and they don't even know it. Today, we're going to go to a city called Smyrna. And Smyrna was this orange. Smyrna was under a lot of pressure. Uh, you could even say that they were being crushed. Uh, have you ever um, said or heard the phrase, I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders? I don't know how much I can, I can handle this. Well, this city, this orange, is representative of Smyrna. They were getting the life pressed, twisted, and crushed out of them. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you bring every weekend, you can turn to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book of the Bible. Or you can uh, open your smartphone and uh, look at your Bible app and just search Revelation chapter 2. And I want to begin reading to you the letter of encouragement that Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna. You'll notice that every city, Jesus says, here's what you're doing well in, and then also here's where you kind of need to grow in. Smyrna is the only city where Jesus has nothing bad to say about them, right? You're like, wow, I, 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 man, I'd want to go to the church in Smyrna. Well, hold on, let's read this letter. 
To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Wow, where are you going to church today? The synagogue of Satan. All right. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, here's the charge that Jesus gives to the church. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And here's the reward. I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, obey me. To the one who is victorious, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. It's as if Jesus is telling the church in Smyrna, look, I know you're getting crushed. I know you're being crushed, and I am going to be with you in the process. Here's a, here's a photo of the seven churches that we've been looking at. Last weekend, we were in Ephesus. We're heading north. I think it's about like 20 to 40 miles from Ephesus. Now, let me tell you a little bit of the background of Ephesus. Ephesus was known for its wine country. Um, they, 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 made, they produced a lot of great wine. They produced a lot of great uh, olive oil. They had advances in medicine and science. The architecture architecture was beautiful. It was one of the 15 largest cities in the Roman Empire. About 100,000 people lived in Smyrna. It was the place to be. Here's a photo of, uh, this is an agora, uh, Greek word for marketplace. Every city had these. This is where you would go and buy food. You would hang out. You would discuss politics and art and life. This is before television, so people had to gather somewhere. Uh, this next photo is actually um, modern-day uh, uh, Smyrna. I forget the Turkish name for it. Uh, modern-day Smyrna with first-century ruins. It's kind of cool. Now, I, I couldn't, although I looked probably longer than I care to admit, I was looking for like an aerial shot of the city because what you can't see, but you could if you were in an airplane, you would see a modern day city centered around uh, uh, ancient artifacts of the Agora. It's kind of cool, right? Like you could do life in a modern 2020 way, but be reminded of the city that actually once was. Smyrna loved Rome, right? Probably in, in an idolatrous sort of way. They loved the Roman Empire. Now, if you were listening at all, if you remember last week, if you're a Christian, Christianity is still illegal uh, at this point in human history. If you were living uh, in the Roman Empire and you were a Christian and you were living in a city that loved Rome and thought its emperor was God, you know there's a lot of red flags going on. They, they, they loved Rome so much that they, I kind of feel like they were, well, I'll just leave it at that. They built, they're one of the first cities to build a temple to the Roman goddess Roma. And they were one of the first cities uh, to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. They loved Rome so much uh, that Rome, I forget the year, that Rome was in a war and the soldiers were losing. They were hungry, uh, they needed new clothing, military weapons, and guess who came to the rescue? 
Smyrna. Smyrna, ga- Smyrna gathered clothing uh, to send to the Roman soldiers. Cicero was an um, ancient Roman historian, and this is what he said about Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the most faithful and most ancient allies. Around 600 BC, though, Smyrna was completely devastated. It was crushed. Nobody lived there. Uh, th- there were no buildings. There, there was no commerce. There was no economy, nothing, until Alexander the Great came in power and rebuilt the city. So if I were to ask you, um, if I were to mention the phrase, the sin city, you probably know that I'm talking about, what, Las Vegas. If uh, I had mentioned the city that never sleeps, you would probably uh, guess that I'm talking about New York City. But if I were to tell you in the first century about a city that died and rose again, that died, hear the subtle language, and came back to life, instinctively you would know that I am talking about the city in Smyrna and the Christians in Smyrna, to which is why Jesus said these words. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Notice, there's a reason why writers write what they write who died and came back to life. Jesus is reminding these Christians, as well as us, this is not just a history lesson, that Jesus is the God that brings dead things back to life. And he gets it. It's really hard to live, and we'll talk about their poverty here in a minute, to live in such a rich uh, city that um, does not support Christianity. It did not socially, like it does in America now, it does not socially benefit you to be a Christian. And I'm, I would guess that the Christians in Smyrna were really discouraged. And I love what Jesus does for us to the church in Smyrna. He first reminds them of the gospel right? I'm the God that died on a cross for your sins in your place, conquering sin, death, and Satan because you couldn't do it, but I gladly did it for you on your behalf. And I rose again three days later, right? Like conceptually, it's easy to cognitively believe that, but it's another thing to feel like you're being crushed, you're being pressed, Politically, economically, socially, relationally, and even religiously. And Jesus reminds them, listen, I'm the God that brings dead things back to life. And this city, by the time I get to the end of my letter, will actually belong to you because you belong to me. Jesus continues to write uh, in verse 9. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life, and you will wear the victor's crown. Jesus says you have a group of Christians that are experiencing affliction. Affliction in the Bible, in the original language, simply means to be pressed under the screws. It's used uh, descriptive of when they would make wine or olive oil, and they would put those under the press to squeeze the content that they need out of it so that they can enjoy wine and that they can enjoy olive oil. This is a church 
they felt like life was absolutely crushing them. What about you? Right? 2020 hasn't been the most pleasant of years. Um, outside of 9-11, I think it's, for me personally, it's one of the hardest years that I've actually had to uh, live through. And even at 9-11, I was a freshman in college. I wasn't leading a church. So it, it's even harder than I thought it would ima uh, imagine. I, I've seen friends quit on each other over COVID-19. I've seen friends um, make a mask political and stop talking to each other. I've seen people who could not go to the hospital because of COVID-19. Now, their loved one did not have COVID-19, but had a progressive form of cancer and could not hold their hand while they passed away from this life to the next. How has 2020 crushed you? I'm asking you to pay attention, to lean forward, and to engage with Jesus. Because I think this is, I mean, all these churches, but I think this church specifically is a word for us today in 2020. They felt like somebody, you know? And isn't this true, what we do with our pain? We barter our pain, right? We're trying to explain it away. Who's crushing me? Is it God? Is it, you know, um, is it my friends? Is it my job? Like, what is, what is just feel like it's beating the life out of me. What is it? I've yet to see the majority, uh, the, the major reason why people leave the church is over theolo theological issues. It's often relational, and often relational immaturity. And sometimes when people, actually, that's a lie. In my experience, a lot of times people leave the church is because of a um, subjective, personal thing that's happening to them where they feel like life is just completely crushing them. The annoying thing about suffering is that if you walk away from Jesus and the church or claim agnosticism or atheism or another religion, guess what? It doesn't actually take the pain away. Your suffering doesn't resolve just because you say there's no God. Right? Well, Jesus historically lived, whether you like it or not. What you believe about him about what he said about himself, that's where the good stuff lies. And it's easy to quit Jesus. It's easy to walk away from the covenant that Jesus made with us through the cross when we feel like life is just squeezing us to death. Yeah, sometimes following Jesus means you're going to get the life crushed out of you. Um, the city, or these Christians actually in Smyrna, were getting the life crushed out of them in three ways. One of them is poverty. Now, the word poverty means completely destitute, like having nothing in the reserves. I remember when I was a, a little kid, my parents loved me. <laughs> and I would ask my, my parents, hey, could I, get, um, could I get the new Jordans or can I get this video game or whatever it was? And mainly my mom more than my dad because my dad was the yes guy. My mom was more the authoritative figure in my, my household. And she said, no, we don't have the money. <clears throat> and I ignorantly said, um, so if you showed me your checkbook, remember, remember, those check, remember that checkbook back in the day? If you would have shown me your checkbook, your balance would be zero dollars and zero cents. Boy, she's about to backhand me like quicker than I could say, come, come now, Jesus. Right? Because I'm like, really, I know you're playing me. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't be uh, subjective around me. Like, I'm going to call you out and get slapped for it. When... when Jesus uses the word poverty. 
He's being descriptive of a church, a fellowship of faith, a group of Christians that feel as though their emotional, relational checkbook is zero dollars and zero cents. They've got nothing left in the tank. Right? And, and maybe you feel like that. Maybe you would say, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much what 2020 has done to me <laughs> this year. That's okay. Right? Jesus doesn't like cover it up. He doesn't like, you know, passively make a joke about it because we like to use humor to diffuse hard moments. He doesn't do any. He just calls things what they are. You feel like you're completely depleted. You have nothing. But what does Jesus do? He reminds them of who they are. Though financially you're poor in a city that's very wealthy. And I know for you parents, there's nothing worse than wanting to provide for your kids and your kids' friends have all the best of the best. And, and even though you probably could provide them with you know, the latest iPhone, you're just like, I don't really, you're not ready for it. And I don't really want to do that right now. It's really hard to live in a city that's wealthier than you that can do whatever they want. And you're poor. And Jesus reminds them that they're rich. He reminds them of the economy that is the gospel. What is the gospel economy? The gospel economy says whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to you if you are a follower of Jesus through this beautiful theological understanding that we are co-heirs with Christ. So you can, you can, um, you can you know, experience this more when you read the prodigal son, Right? Because Jesus goes to the cross and the Father adopted us, whatever belongs to Jesus ultimately belongs to us, right? Like, I really can't wait to hike the Rocky Mountains for eternity. That's basically what he's saying, right? If there's, a, if there's an ocean that you love, it's yours. If there's a mountain range that you love, it's yours. It all belongs to our Heavenly Father. And if you have been adopted by the blood of Christ... It all belongs to you. Now, you might say, well, Ben, that's a nice sentiment, but I need, I need, bill, I, I need food on the table. i got to pay my bills. Mm, yeah, right, I get that. But we sometimes forget the blessing that we have through the blood of Christ when life feels like it's just pounding us down. And Jesus reminds us as a church, even though this part of the country is very wealthy, um, that money does not buy everything when the God of the universe actually owns everything. Money can trick us into thinking we own anything. But Jesus is saying, no, you don't own anything. I own everything. The, the, second, the second way they're being crushed is through this word slander. And slander, an easy way to remember slander, it's just it's character assassination. Now, Smyrna had a pretty large population of Jews. And some of these Jews were uh, converting to Christianity. Why does that matter? Well, it's a big deal because in Judaism, there's no such thing as a trinity. God would never become uh, a man. That is just too humiliating, which I agree that is humiliating. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. But yet people in the Jewish community are converting to Christianity. And so not only is this church economically poor, they're getting made fun of for being a Jesus follower by their own friends and family and neighbors. That ever happened to you? I remember when <laughs> I remember when I was uh, 18, heading into college. Uh, actually, no, that's a lie. 17, because that's when adults started to ask you, like, what do you want to do with your life? And half the time, I'm like, I don't know. What do you want to do with your life? They're like, mm, that's a good point. I don't, 
I don't know. And uh, I, I said, well, I'm going to be a pastor. I, w- I want to uh, go into ministry. And the, the look on their face is like, oh, okay, well, like, kind of like, what's your fallback plan? Right? Like, ha- has, has Jesus af- actually ever cost you a relationship? Now, what I'm about to say is not a guilt trip, but if the answer is no, like, do people know that you follow Jesus? I, I, don't, I don't know. Or is it Jesus just a weekend thing for you? Not only do you have a group of Christians <laughs> that are uh, economically getting pummeled, but their friends are not hanging out with them anymore. Maybe they're not being invited to Jewish holidays. Right now, Jews are, are uh, celebrating uh, the Feast of Tabernacle right, right now, which we know as Christians, Jesus fulfills that in John 1.1 when John says, uh, Jesus tabernacled or lived among us. And those, those celebrations are not being celebrated anymore with family members. One of the ways that I think that they're probably being slandered and saying um, the reason why you're poor and you can't provide food for your family is this. In the Roman Empire, there was a, a trade guild that a lot of uh, Romans, Christian or non-Christians, would be a part of. And you'd have to pay your dues uh, to be in this trade guild, and the money would go to support the Roman economy. But part of being in that trade guild is that you would have to make little graven images of gods and goddesses that the Romans worshipped. Remember last weekend we talked about um, Artemis, the goddess of fertility? Yeah, you would have to create these little Roman gods and goddesses so that families would buy them, put them in their homes, worship them, pray to them, asking you know, uh, for these gods and goddesses to bless their family. Problem is, believe this or not, right, put this in your pike and pipe and smoke it. The gospel was impacting the Roman economy so much that people were converting to Christianity in record numbers that the need and the drive to make these gods and goddesses were going incredibly down. And Romans, non-Christian Romans, were like out of work. I'll prove it to you. Read the book of Acts. When Paul goes to Ephesus, I showed you a photo last weekend of the amphitheater. It kind of reminds me of like Red Rocks, best venue to hear a band. If you haven't gone, you need to go whenever that, whenever that happens. That it can hold 15,000 people. And guess what? A riot broke out. You know that stuff that you're seeing on TV, right? People breaking windows, things catching on fire. That's what happened in Ephesus. You want to know why? Because the gospel was impacting the Roman economy. Too many people were leaving the Roman uh, polytheism belief in all of these gods and goddesses for the one true God, Yahweh. And they were following Yeshua, King Jesus. And a riot broke out because nothing ticks off a group of people, amen, like hitting hitting them in the pocketbooks. Not much has changed since the first century. And so that could probably be why one of the reasons why it's, hey, it's your fault if you're in Smyrna and you walked away from your job because you kind of had a choice. If you follow King Jesus, could you ethically go to work next day, the next day? Could you work in the Roman trade guild and create these false idols that really, you know, give no value to anybody? Or I'm just, I'm just going to, part of my job as a preacher is to agitate you. Or would you look at it like, ah, whatever, it's food on the table, right? Like, if they want to believe it, like, whatever. But I need to provide for my family. It's a dilemma. You ever had that dilemma in work? As a follower of Jesus, you're like, I don't know if this is the ethical or Jesus way of doing 
things. They were made fun of. Their character was assassinated. Thirdly and finally, they were poor, they were made fun of, uh, and they were persecuted. Jesus, in the uh, sort of the third, uh, the three, uh, the, sort of the end of the letter, says that um, you'll be thrown in jail by Satan. And then he says this interesting line that you'll suffer, but only for 10 days. And this is an example in Revelation where people are like, oh, can you preach on Revelation? And I go, what part? And then they ask, well, what, what part? Uh, do, you t- do you read Revelation literally or metaphorically? To which I say, what part in Revelation? You read Revelation 2 and 3 like you would the Gospels, historical, accurate accounts of what happened in the first century. So when Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you will suffer, but only for 10 days, he's talking about two things. One, it's a head nod back to the book of Daniel when they refused to eat the king's meat. And ultimately, they were thrown into what? The fiery furnace. And what, it, what, and what did the king's officials do? They kept checking on them, right? And they noticed like a, an extra person that was in the fire. And you're like, oh, man, this is going to come up on my business, uh, my, my work review. I'm going to get canned for this. I think I threw one too many people in the fire. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but let me blow your mind and I'll move on. A lot of theologians believe that that was a theophany. A theophany is... Moments in the Old Testament where Jesus is actually among us. And in that instance, in the fire with us. So the phrase, you will suffer for 10 days, is a gospel truth about what? That Jesus will always deliver us. Always deliver us. Now, will we suffer for 10 days? Uh, No, right? Hello, 2020. What he's saying is, you will suffer but it will be for a season, and then it will be over. And what's the charge to the church in Smyrna? It's the same charge to us in 2020 in Salem, New Hampshire, to be faithful. Stay close to Jesus. Every week you're going to hear a story of someone from our church that is trying to step into one of these values. And I want you to uh, hear about Mike Peter's story. Just take a moment watch this video. Hi, my name is Mike Peters. Um, I was born and brought up a farm in in Salem, New Hampshire. And um, we've been through some difficult times, um, especially this year, with a severe drought. And we also had problems in the past with floods and other disasters. And the only way I could get through all of this is with, um, you know, uh, knowing God and praying to God and each and every day. And, uh, if I did not read his scripture and I did not know his word, I would not be able to get through this um, every day of my life. So when I think of um, some of the things that I go through every day, I think of um, some of the Old Testament characters such as David and Joseph and Moses and how they were faithful to God and they obeyed God. And I think that that is the same God back then in, in ancient times as we have now. And if God would hear their prayer, I know God would hear my prayer. So each and every day, when I ask God for his blessing and his help, um, I knew his promises were true from the the scripture I read. So the other thing I need to be aware of, and and I do this every day, is I have to watch out for my feelings because I have to remember that I have to go on my faith and not my feelings. 
Because if I go by my feelings, I have a roller coaster ride every single day. I thank God every day for what he's given me and all the blessings. Awesome. I love, uh, love hearing Mike's, Mike's story. And uh, I don't have the patience to be a farmer because so, so much of what he said is like not in our control. And yet he decides to remain faithful, uh, to rely on his heavenly father, uh, as, as all farmers have to, like they have to rely and depend on the weather. You know, it's interesting that you may or may not be surprised by this, but in Ephesus, you lose your influence by not loving people well. In Smyrna, you lose your influence by not suffering well and refusing to be faithful. So here's the payoff. Here's what Jesus says is our reward at the end of this letter. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, right, I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. So what is, what is the reward, so to speak, for being uh, faithful to Jesus? Uh, Jesus uses the language of a crown of life. Now, in the Roman Empire, as you're familiar with with the Olympic Games, crowns were incredibly important. Crowns were also representative of a city. Now, check this out. Jesus is saying, like, I know you're suffering. I know that you feel like you're getting the life crushed out of you. If you remain faithful to me, if you walk with me in this covenant that we established together, I will give you the crown of life, not, not not just the crown of the city of Smyrna that you, which is which is a gospel truth that you will now own because because I own it. But I will give you the crown of life. You will have conquered sin, Satan, and death because of what I have done for you. So, church, be faithful as you suffer a little while, and as you are crushed under the screws for a little while. One of the early church fathers, uh, Polycarp, was uh, born in Smyrna. And uh, he was murdered for his faith. He was, he was a martyr. And um, it's interesting, one of the things that the crowd said before his impending death was this, away with the atheist, let Polycarp be searched for. And I want to close with what Polycarp said in response to that. And I hope that you can lean in and be encouraged by his faithfulness. This is what he says. For 86 years, I have served Jesus. I have served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I then blasphemy my king who saved me? You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked, the judgment to come, descriptive of hell, an everlasting punishment. And then he says this, why are you waiting? Come and do what you will. To the church, to the angel of the church in Salem, New Hampshire, write, do not be afraid for what you are about to suffer. Be faithful. Be faithful to Jesus, even in a year where it feels like the weight of the world is placing you under the screws and just crushing you. Jesus is with you. He is your deliverer. And by the cross and the resurrection, 
in our faithfulness to Jesus, we will one day receive the crown of life. Be faithful. 